And those two verses I want to read are from uh, Job uh, chapter 14 and verse 4, and then from Job chapter 15 and verse 14. And so let me invite you as you're able, let's stand together in honor of the reading and hearing of God's word. First, from uh, Job uh, 14 and verse 4. And if we go all the way back to Job 12, 1, uh, this is a part of the, the words that were spoken through Job. Job 14, 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. And then from Job 15, you can see that these are words taken from verse 1, Eliphaz the Temanite. And in verse 14, it says, What is man that he should be clean? And he which is born of a woman, that he should be righteous. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of his word and let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, as we pause this afternoon and we humble ourselves uh, under the word and we humble ourselves under your presence, we ask as we continue this ongoing study that you would uh, continue to teach us uh, what it means to be a believer, uh, what it means to live a life of gratitude before thee. And so instruct us uh, through the scriptures and by the spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. As I, I noted uh, this morning, we now have these uh, copies of the Heidelberg Catechism. And we love for uh, each household to be able to get one and to use that. If you have the Reformation Heritage Study Bible, the Heidelberg Catechism is also there in the back of, of that Bible. And so we're, uh, we started this series uh, it's going to take us through really the rest of the year, and that is uh, we're going to be working our way through uh, the questions here, uh, these discipleship questions to try to grow stronger in the faith. And today we're on the third Lord's Day uh, teaching. It's hard to believe it's already the third Lord's Day of the year. The Heidelberg Catechism is called a Book of Comfort a book of consolation, also exhortation. And uh, it's been a well-used instrument of discipleship by many believers and churches down through the years. As we've noted before, the Heidelberg Catechism falls into three parts. And they can be summarized as guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt describing man's misery apart from Christ. Grace describing redemption that comes through Christ. Gratitude talking about a life that is lived by the Christian out of thankfulness for what God has done for him through Christ. On this third Lord's Day of this year, though, we're still in that first part. Uh, we're in the part where we're learning about man's guilt, man's misery in his unregenerate state. And we've already learned from the catechism, if we went back to question three, that how do we know that we're in a state of misery? And we've been taught we know this out of the law of God. This is the purpose of the law of God, especially the moral law of God. 
as we discover that we can, as the Catechism puts it, in no wise keep the law of God perfectly. We mentioned this last week. We go through the Ten Commandments. Have you ever stolen something? Have you ever said something that wasn't true? Um, we have all, to one degree or another, broken the moral law of God. And we cannot keep it perfectly. Uh, we can look at Christ's great summary of the moral law. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Rather than love God and love our neighbor, we have been prone to hate God. And hate may seem like a strong term to you, but when we talk about an all-holy God who cannot bear, as it says in the book of Habakkuk, even to look upon wickedness. Um, one sin against God makes us a hater of God. And we are also haters of our neighbor. And so we cannot uh, keep the law. And so we learn that we are sinners. We learn about our state of misery out of the law of God. Our instructor or teacher in the catechism continues now to teach us by addressing a series of lessons that center around the question, are unregenerate or unsaved or lost men capable of doing any good? That's an interesting question. Can unsaved persons do things that are pleasing to God? If a man is not a believer, not a Christian, but he lives something that looks like an outwardly upright life, he never murdered anyone. He never committed adultery. He takes care of his family. He's a good citizen. Perhaps he goes out and joins a civic organization. We were talking about this uh, the other day. He becomes a mason and he makes a pledge to do good deeds. Or maybe he joins, there's, a, there's something called the Golden Rule Club. You know, it's based on the teachings of Jesus, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And he wants to live a morally upright life. What about the man even, maybe he's not a Christian, but uh, he joins a church. He makes a false profession. Maybe he doesn't even realize he's not a Christian. He joins a church and he engages, he attends worship. Um, he gives money to the church to support its ministry. Um, is this person doing something that is pleasing to God? Can an unregenerate person, is he capable of doing anything good? What's the answer to that question? What does the Bible teach us is the answer to that question. Before we get to that central question, our teacher in the catechism presents us with some basic biblical truths about what we could call the human condition. Um, we were talking about this actually on Wednesday night, that the, the, the doctrinal term uh, for the doctrine of man is called anthropology. The Greek word for a human being is an anthropos. Uh, and so anthropology is the, the study or the doctrine of, of man. Um, if someone is misanthropic, they don't like people. <laughs> uh, maybe you feel misanthropic from time to time. Um, but 
this is the doctrine of anthropology. Who, who are human beings? What does the Bible teach us about who we are? And so um, if I say that men are sinners and they're in a state of misery and they can't keep God's law, this might raise the question of, well, are we this way because God made us this way? Did God sort of perversely make us so that we couldn't ever keep the law or couldn't please him? And this is addressed in question six. And I mentioned all the places we can find it now, the booklet, the, 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 KJ, the uh, Reformation Heritage Study Bible. And also Bonnie has conveniently put our questions for today on the back of the bulletin for Lord's Day 3. Question six asks this. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? So that's the question. You might run into that question. Maybe you thought it yourself. Uh, did God make us so that we would sin? And this is the, the answer that is given by our teacher. Uh, by no means. But God created man good. And after his own image in true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. This question and answer provides a review of many of the foundational things that we learned about, read about in our recent study of the opening chapters of Genesis, particularly Genesis Chapters 1 and 2. And what we learned there was that God made human beings, made man, made anthropoi, uh, men, good and after his own image. So, for example, in Genesis 1, verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That included human beings in the pre-fall world. If we were to go back from Genesis 1.31 to Genesis 1.26 and 27. And God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And then later on it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him. Male and female created he them. So what we learn is God made man good. God made man in his own image. God's good and original design was for man to live in fellowship with God. And as the catechism points out, I think it's some memorable phrasings. We were made to know God. We were made heartily to love God. I love that expression. We weren't, we weren't made just to have a, a, a sort of a, be in awe of God, but to heartily love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. As uh, it says in Deuteronomy 6, and as Christ repeats in the, the great commandment. And we were made to live with him in eternal happiness. There was a covenant of creation upon condition of perfect obedience that man would live in the garden and would enjoy harmony uh, with God, fellowship with God, communion with God. And this is what life would have been like if man had not fallen into sin by eating of the forbidden fruit, by disobedience. But the, 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 the catechism here in this opening question also hints at the fact that though this state has been lost, 
man can begin to experience it anew if his nature is changed and if he is born again. One of the proof texts given for question six is Colossians 3.10 that says Christians have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. We proceed to question seven. Question seven asks, okay, if man's in a state of misery, but he's not there because God made him to be in this state of misery. God made him good. God made him heartily to love him and to live in happiness with him for eternity. And the question seven then asks, okay, whence or from where then proceeds, pre, proceeds this depravity of human nature? And the answer it gives is this. From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, hence our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Now again, some of you may be here today and you're thinking, well, Pastor, I've been a Christian for several years or many years even. You know, this is Mickey Mouse. This is, this is simple stuff. But I want you to keep in mind that we've got people listening today um, who are, are, are children in particular, maybe people who are new to the faith for whom this isn't something new and something that must be taught. And we can recall what um, a Pastor Collins, Hercules Collins said, that there is material here for the simple. There is milk. The nursing infant needs milk. But there's also material here that is so profound that even if you're a mature Christian who's been a believer for many years, you'll never uh, stop ceasing to ponder and wonder about these circumstances. And so there's also meat here. There's milk and there is meat. God made mankind good, but our nature has been spoiled and it all started with the fall and disobedience of those whom we call our first parents, Adam and Eve. It's described in Genesis 3. And we, all of us who are here today, we come in a line from them by ordinary generation. We've seen this in Genesis 2, haven't we? From Adam through the line of Seth to Noah. And then from the three sons of Noah uh, uh, from Shem, Ham, and Japheth come all the nations, all the people of the world. We are direct descendants from Adam and Eve, and we have inherited something within ourselves, within our natures from them. We have inherited a fallen nature. It's not something we chose. It's something that was beyond our control. Actually, the knowledge of the Bible's teaching of sin will explode any simplistic Arminian affirmation of free will. Did anybody here choose to be born to your parents who were in the line of our first parents, Adam and Eve? No, it was thrust upon you. you you're here by ordinary generation. And the Bible teaches, again, that we've inherited this sin nature and that from the very beginning, we were conceived and born in sin. 
This is what we call original sin. Two of the proof texts that are given by our teacher in the catechism are first Romans 5.12. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Through one man, through Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin because the wages of sin is death. There's a sense in which when there's a, a, a stillbirth or the death of an infant, it's a tragedy, we're sad about it. But that child, even not having committed any actual transgressions, is a sinner. And, and it is, is not worthy of life less that child's granted it in God's mercy. And so we have inherited a sin nature from our first parents. And as Psalm 51.5 puts it, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It doesn't mean that you were, this person was conceived in sinful circumstances. It means with the weight of sin in my nature, I was conceived and I inherited by ordinary generation, a sin nature from our first parents. This leads us now to the central question that I introduced earlier. And I think this is articulated in question eight. Question eight is, are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. Are we unregenerate persons? This is speaking, you know, of course, he's writing this for Christians, but he's saying, imagine your life apart from Christ. Imagine your life in the unregenerate state. Were we so corrupt that we were wholly incapable of doing any good and were we wholly inclined to all wickedness? And the answer given is, I love some of these pithy answers in this. Indeed, we are. Indeed, we are. Except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. So let's go back to that original question. Can the man who is not a Christian but seems to live outwardly a morally upright life, can he do something that is good and acceptable before God? Can the person who joins the Freemasons and devotes himself to doing good deeds, by the way, being a Mason is incompatible with being a Christian, but if he commits himself to doing good deeds, can he do things that are pleasing in God's sight? If he's an unbeliever who joins the Golden Rule Club and, and runs a business and tries to treat people the way he would want to be treated, is he doing things that are good and pleasing to God? Can the, the nice, old, unregenerate gentleman who lives down the street from you, uh, who is a member of a mainline Protestant church that teaches heresy every Sunday, or a part of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, can he do something that is good and pleasing to God? What about the nice Mormon family down the road? Uh, they're so clean cut. They have such a nice family. They homeschool. I mean, I thought you were justified by homeschooling, right? Uh, they're, they're, they're outwardly, they don't, they don't drink caffeine, they don't get drunk. Um, 
They, they, never, they only watch G-rated movies. Um, surely they do good things that are pleasing in God's sight. Now what about the, the upright Muslim friend or neighbor or Buddhist or Hindu or Sikh or even, even a, a, a nice atheistic person? Can they please God by doing good? Well, what does our teacher say? Notice our teacher uses, as I pointed out already, the first person plural. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? And I think he does that in pur on purpose to say, we're not just talking about the Masons. We're not talking about the Mormons. We're, we're talking about ourselves. We're talking about who we were when we were apart from Christ. Who we were in our unregenerate state, whether we were raised in a Christian family or outside of the Christian family and never gone to church. Who were we? Were we capable of doing any good apart from Christ? And uh, the, the answer that is given is also in the first person plural. Are we so corrupt that we are incapable of doing this? Indeed, we are. We are incapable. We have no spiritual capacity to do anything that is good and pleasing in God's sight apart from the mercy and grace of God. We find among the proof texts for these statements, those two statements that I read from the book of Job, Job 14, verse 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Can we bring clean or righteous deeds out of someone who is unclean, somebody who's apart from Christ? Not one. Job 15, 14. What is a man that he should be clean? Uh, John 15, uh, uh, what is a man that he should be clean and he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Can a man be clean? Can a man be righteous? And it's a rhetorical question saying no, he can't be. We could add to this a proof text that's not mentioned uh, by our teacher, but it's one that's often cited in this discussion. It's Isaiah 64 verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses, some modern translations say all of our righteous acts or deeds, are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. That's a really stark verse. That's one that's been used in the conversion of many people who rested in their supposed good works and they read Isaiah 64, 6 and they, they wait a second. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And maybe you know that that term filthy rags may have been a reference to the menstrual cloth. All of, all of our righteous deeds, all the things we think we've done that are upright, these things are just soiled rags, bloody rags, uh, a pile of bloody rags, a pile of filthiness before a holy God. But notice also, our catechism teacher ends the answer to question eight with a word of hope. 
indeed we are wholly incapable of doing good, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not found in anything the Christian does. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not found in anything the Christian does, but the difference is found in what God does for that man. What God does for that man. If this idea is something that you're not familiar with, I'd suggest for our, our homework, you might read the account that's given in John chapter 3 to the time when a man named Nicodemus came at night because he was afraid of people seeing him go to talk with Christ. He went with, to Christ by night and talked with him. And among the things Christ said to him was this in John 3 verse 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in John 3, verse 5, it says, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. He has a natural birth and then a spiritual birth. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What does God have to do so that a man's a man is capable of doing things that are pleasing in his sight? Not much. He just has to completely change his nature. Completely renew his nature. He has to be born again. Born from above. These words of Christ in John 3, 3, John 3, 5, except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. These are the key to attaining what that first question asks us about in this catechism. What is our only comfort in life and death? It's not any good that we have done or we might do, but it is holy in what God has done for us in Christ. And it begins with him changing us, changing our nature, causing us to be born again, born from above. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Just join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, help us not to point the finger at an upright person who's a non-Christian we might know, whether to try to seek out some good we can justify before thee or to condemn him. But let us, as the teacher leads us, consider ourselves before we consider anybody else and think of where we have been if we are believers before we came into Christ. And as we consider those that are our, our friends and loved ones that are apart from him, let us pray more sincerely and earnestly that you would be pleased to change them uh, not merely their outward deeds and actions, but to change their whole nature, to transform them and begin to conform them unto Christ. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.